0: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: Are you struggling with debt? Do you have collectors breathing down your neck, threatening to repossess your property, and filing lawsuits against you in court? For many Americans facing this dilemma, their options are fairly limited. Hiring a lawyer is often out of the question because of cost. After all, if they could afford to hire one, they probably wouldn't be facing a debt collection lawsuit in the first place. Meanwhile, navigating the complex and intimidating court system can be daunting enough, even with representation. Without it, and it's a Herculean task. Upsolve, a New York-based company founded in 2016 by ABA Journal Legal Rebels Jonathan Petz and Rohan Pavluri, to help users file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy on their own, decided to try and help. Upsolve sought to train non-lawyers to provide free, limited legal advice to help low-income individuals facing debt collection lawsuits in New York. One problem, though. The program potentially ran afoul of the state's unauthorized practice of law, or UPL rules. So Upsolve filed a lawsuit in New York Federal District Court seeking a declaratory judgment that his program did not violate the UPL rules. In late May, the court granted Upsal's motion for a preliminary injunction, holding that the New York Attorney General's Office could not enforce state UPL laws against the company. While there's still a ways to go on this lawsuit, the implications could be huge for the entire legal industry. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm an assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal and host of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast. Today, my guest is Rebecca Sandifer, professor and director of the Sanford School of Law and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, and a faculty fellow with the American Bar Foundation. Sandifer has been at the forefront of trying to get states to expand access to justice by reforming its regulatory rules that keep companies like Upsolve from being able to provide services for the millions of Americans that cannot afford legal representation. Thank you for joining
2: us, Becky. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you, and I apologize for my somewhat croaky voice.
1: (laughs) No, you sound great to me, so. So I gave a little bit about your background in the intro, but there's obviously a lot more to you. Can you talk a little bit about yourself, especially why expanding access to justice has been such an important issue for you?
2: Sure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today and to talk with your audience. I got into studying access to justice because I started out by studying lawyers. I was very interested in inequality in the legal profession, and lawyers were very interested in inequality in the legal profession. But I started to wonder why we were all so interested in lawyers. I mean, you're all very interesting and lovely people, but, you know, there are (laughs) lots of interesting and lovely groups of people, and why lawyers were so important was something I started to think about And to me, the thing that was really striking was we have a public justice system, right? So we elect people to write laws about stuff that we've decided is so important that we as a collective should have a stake in it. We should have some some say in how things go down around people's families or around their employment or around their housing. And so that's public, and then we have a public justice system that enforces and Helps people use those laws, um, and we all pay for that, for that through taxes, and we staff it, and we build the buildings. But in our system, it's sort of strange. Our public legal system and our public laws are so complicated that you really have to hire a third-party private expert to help you use it, and that's what a lawyer is. So there's this kind of gatekeeper to a public justice system that you don't see for other kinds of public systems. So, for example, if you want to enroll your kid in public school, you can You don't have to hire a private educational consultant to help you navigate the public school. And so I began to think about what that meant for people's ability to use their own laws. And that's really the study of access to justice. How are people able to think about their issues? How are they able to handle their issues? And it became very clear to me that if you're looking on the civil side, These are really critical problems that people face. They're about making a living and having a place to live and being able to care for people who are dependent on you, who might be adults or might be children. They might be your own children. They might be your neighbor's children or your family member's children. And so, you know... Helping people be able to connect to laws, ability to help them handle those really critical life issues has become basically my life's work because it's just so important. It's important both for, for sort of flourishing of our, of our communities, but it's also important for the health of our democracy. I mean, democracy only works when we use it, and so we need to enable people to be able to use their own laws.
1: So we can talk a little bit about the ruling a little bit. So obviously, this is a big ruling, but it wasn't on the merits. It was for injective relief. But nevertheless, likelihood of success on the merits is a factor in granting an injunction. So should we expect more good news for Upsolve for the future, or is it still too early to tell where things stand?
2: So I'm not an expert on the law. I'm just an expert on how the law works, I guess. But I mean, my sense is that this is a really exciting opportunity to open up space for other kinds of groups that might be helping people with issues like wage justice or housing justice to start to train people who could provide this kind of specialized legal advice that Upsolve is currently permitted to provide. And the great thing about it being a First Amendment case is that's, that applies everywhere, right? That's the Constitution as an ordinary person would understand it. And so that means that this could be a really wide reaching, wide ranging Opportunity to open up more space for this kind of work in communities all around the country, and I hope that's what people are doing.
1: So, yeah, you talked a little about the First Amendment grants. So, the judge based his ruling on you know the fact that the UPL law stifled Upsol's right to engage in protected speech. I mean, were you surprised that the judge focused on that and ruled like that? Because um, like, just think, thinking about it, obviously, it makes sense. But I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, whenever you get like something that definitive saying, OK, this is a," like you said, this impacts a basic fundamental right that people have under the Constitution. It certainly, like you said, makes people kind of stand up and take notice.
2: I mean, I think it's wonderful. And I think it's also wonderful that in that decision— Part of the reasoning that led the judge to say this was a, an okay kind of free speech was looking at empirical evidence that shows that people can be quite successfully trained to engage in this speech in a way that is safe and effective for the people they're assisting. I think it's fantastic.
1: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, ...examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydakota.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level... ...by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple.
1: Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc, that's staf dot c-c, and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. So let's talk generally now. So some states like Utah and Arizona have relaxed their UPL regulations to allow for companies to provide legal services to low-income individuals who can't hire a lawyer. Other states are looking at possible reforms, uh, and you're involved in some of those efforts. So can you talk about some of your work in that regard and your work in trying to get states to change their rules as a means towards expanding access to justice?
2: Sure. There are a couple different kinds of things that states are trying, or three, really. So one is just changing the rules. Arizona would be an example of that. So they just changed the Rule 5.4, which is about non-lawyer investment and ownership in legal services producing entities. And you can register and become an, you know, a licensed alternative business structure, they're called in Arizona. The other thing that's happening much more frequently is the creation of new kinds of licensed and certificated paralegals. They're usually members of the bar in a way, um, and they're licensed by the bar or, or the Supreme Court, whoever does the licensing in a given state. And they have some kind of limited practice. So they can only do family or they can only do landlord, tenant, and debt. They can only do parts of those issues, whatever the issues they are empowered to help with. Sometimes they have rights of appearance in certain kinds of courts, like, for example, small claims courts or family courts. Sometimes they don't. Those are probably the most palatable things to the bar, to the lawyers who control this regulation process, because it looks a lot like our regulation of lawyers, right? So it's everything we do is front loaded, right? So there are educational requirements and tests and character and fitness, and then you're licensed and we let you free in the world with some kind of continuing education requirements. But basically, you're not monitored unless there's a big complaint against you. The really interesting thing that's different from just changing the rules or creating different categories of lawyers, basically, is what Utah has done in creating a regulatory sandbox. So a sandbox is is exciting in two different ways, I think. So one of them is you can release rules about non-lawyer ownership. You can release rules about unauthorized practice of law, at least in concept, in any combination. So you can have any Really radically innovative service delivery and service production models. But it's also, it's evidence based. And the evidence that you care about in a sandbox model is the actual experience of the consumer. So if you're focused on access to justice, which is people actually being able to resolve their justice issues, find just solutions for those issues, or if you're interested in consumer protection, which is people actually receiving competent services that are, you know, that meet their needs and are proportionate to their needs, then a sandbox is how you, that, that's how you regulate to try to ensure those kinds of outcomes. So that's really, really exciting. I have been probably most actively involved in the work in Utah. I sit on the executive committee of the Sandbox, which is the, the the Office of Legal Services Innovation, which is essentially the functional regulator of these innovative legal services. And that's been an extraordinary experience to be part of an incredible team that put that together, that implemented it, and that now, you know, enacts it and refines it. And, in response to what we learn. The other effort in which I'm most actively involved is California, which is has a committee under the state bar, which is exploring recommendations about a sandbox in California. Now Utah's a relatively small market, And so I think it's, it hit last month or in March, 20,000 services over the time that the Utah sandbox has been open. But you know, if, if something in any form like this happened in California, I mean, that's the world's sixth largest economy. I think it's 60 million people almost. Um, that would be incredible. It would be incredible both in terms of, of what we could learn about how this stuff works, but also it would be incredible in terms of the number of people who would be, who would have a new kind of access to justice that they currently don't have.
1: Right. So a couple of things I wanted to kind of unpack from that. So you talked about licensing paralegals or paraprofessionals or some kind of you know, non-legal professionals, uh, some kind of scheme in that regard. So obviously, you know, with Washington's program that they tried several years ago and, and recently sunset the um, limited license uh,
2: Limited licensed I, legal technicians. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, I can never remember whether it was three L's and a T or one L and three T's. It's, very, it's a terrible name. It, it is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really feel like they could have put a little more emphasis into like marketing and branding on that one. But if I recall, one of the complaints was that the regulations and the requirements for licensing and education and whatnot were so restrictive that it scared away a lot of potential people who might be interested in pursuing this. And uh, it was almost like, you know, it wasn't quite getting another legal degree, but it was – the restrictions were so onerous and so intense that a lot of people just decided not to do it or, or didn't think it was worth it. So how do you sort of strike a balance between that and you know, not having enough regulation to the point that then you, know, you potentially harm the consumer and you know, by putting them with uh, professionals who might not have the requisite training? How do you strike a balance there?
2: Well, I think, I think the best way to strike a balance is to regulate for the outcome you actually care about, which is what the consumer receives. And the way you do that is through a sandbox model where you're actively collecting data on consumers' actual experiences. Now, we don't regulate any legal services in in that way at all in any other context, but that's really what you should do. There's very little evidence. There's a research literature on things like do these character and fitness tests mean that you know we weed out bad actors does taking the bar exam 40 years ago make you a good lawyer 40 years later and there's actually very little evidence that those things are effective there's certainly no evidence that they're more effective than what we know works for non-traditional legal services providers which is some amount not too much of specialized training that helps them understand what they need to do to help with the specific kind of problem that they have. And so I would have us, I mean, ideally I'd have us move to an outcome-focused, consumer experience-focused regulation model. That is hard for the bar to get its head around. If we're not going to do that, then I think we should make requirements proportionate to what we want people to actually, you know, be able to do. And right right now, as you said, with the example of the triple LTS in Washington, I mean, it's way too much front-end regulation, um, way too much overkill in terms of what we're then allowing people to do on the other side of that. And so we could slim that down, I think, with no harm to consumer protection. But I would like to see us actually examine consumer protection. I mean, another thing you see about the regulation of legal services is that when disciplinary committees in different states take action against unauthorized practice, they are almost always... Instigated in doing so by lawyers, not by consumers, not by people who feel like they've gotten a bad deal or bad service, but by lawyers who are annoyed that there's some kind of competitor in their space. And then what we know from research by Deborah Rohde and Lucy Ricca, for example, is that when those regulators, you know, tackle these instances of unauthorized practice, they very seldom actually look to see if consumers were in fact harmed. They just tell people to stop because it violates the rules, not because it hurts anybody. So I think if we're going to stick with these big front end systems, which I think are a bad idea, but I understand they've been around for a long time and there's probably a deep commitment to them. We need to be looking at consumers' actual experience as a way of thinking about how much of that stuff we need on the front end and how we should administer that stuff on the front end.
1: And then uh, you mentioned California earlier. I mean, just following some of the reports coming out about that process, it looks like you know it kind of started off with a pretty grand focus, but then as, as people have pushed back on it and people have complained, you know, um, the focus has narrowed a bit to the point. I think uh, non-lawyer ownership of, of firms is off the table, and there's some other things that are being debated and whatnot. So, how do you get lawyers to buy into a system that, like you said, you know, could potentially it's seen as sort of an existential threat in a lot of ways. Like, how do you get lawyers to buy into a system that you know will see these non-lawyers, non-legal professionals, quote unquote, take work from
2: potential lawyers? Well, I think I think there are some really deep misunderstandings of legal services markets in the United States, and that's kind of what's underlying some of the fears and concerns that lawyers have. So let's look at low-income populations. So if you're really poor in the U.S., you're actually eligible for federally subsidized civil legal assistance. The most recent study out of the LSC shows that even though that system exists there and even though lawyers do pro bono, 90 percent of the issues that poor people experience get inadequate or no legal service. That's a huge need. Now if you move up the income scale to people who cannot afford to pay $250 an hour or $500 an hour for an attorney, they have no access to free legal services. There's nothing that exists to assist them. And lawyers are are not, you know, bending over backwards to try to figure out how to work with those market segments. So the kinds of consumers that these new services would be helping are consumers who are currently getting nothing. Right. It's not, it's not the case that these are, are going to take away, you know, large corporate clients from the bar any more than consulting firms have already done that. Right. So I think that's a really important misconception. I think another important misconception is, you know, my colleague and I, Tom Clark from the National Center for State Courts, did an early evaluation of the triple LTs in Washington. And one of the things that we discovered is that law firms would hire them as ways of expanding that law firm's penetration into the market. So a triple LT could help clients that were not economical for lawyers to help with full representation. And then because triple LTs couldn't appear in court, they could unbundle the representation part of their client's needs to the law firm. So the law firms that hired these new kinds of legal workers got more business than they would have had if those legal workers didn't exist. And I think helping the bar understand that, that there's an enormous chasm of need that there's no way the bar can scale up to serve. It's shown robustly over 60 or 70 years that it doesn't and it won't. So there's, you know, lots of space there for other kinds of workers and that, you know, if you partner with those other kinds of workers, you can expand your market share. I think that's an incredible opportunity for the bar. And so helping folks see that, I think is an important part of making them recognize this is not in fact an existential threat.
1: And so to bring it back to Upsolve, do you think that a lawsuit like that, challenging UPL laws directly, um, could be a model for other companies throughout the country? Or do you think this is kind of unique to New York and Upsolve circumstances?
2: Well, because it because it's citing federal law, I don't think it's necessarily unique to New York or to Upsolve. And I hope that there are people out there right now thinking about how they would like to be of greater assistance to the communities that they serve. It could be around wage justice, it could be around housing, it could be around different kinds of family issues, it could be around domestic violence. How could they more effectively work on the problems that they're working on in their communities if they could give some legal advice? And can they find somebody who can help train them up to do that? Because right now, the training's not against the rules. It's just the execution of the service that violates the unauthorized practice rules. So I would love to see people starting to do more challenges like Upsolved It. And finally,
1: if our listeners wish to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so?
2: So you can go to the Arizona State University website. And you will find my email address, which is rebecca.sandifer at asu.edu. And I'd love to hear from you. Great.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Becky.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: So uh, for our listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. If you like this podcast and want to hear more like it, please check out Legal Talk Network. My name is Victor Lee, and this has been the ABA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.